This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. Wow. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is what, how do we describe this? Day one, day two of the new era. And just like that, Donald Trump is gone. Am I the only one who feels a little bit disoriented? This uh, this whiplash of the transition between uh, these two administrations. I mean, the contrast is so dramatic. It's just so amazing. Watching in the morning, Donald Trump leave office, this small, diminished man, uh, Joe Biden coming in. And I look, I'll be honest with you, my expectations for the inauguration were very low. So they, they were uh, exceeded. But um, it, it is it is remarkable how fast uh, things have changed. And I think there is a, a kind of a disorientation, a little bit of a hangover uh, seeing this transition. You know, the, you hear the phrase, the return to normalcy. Um, but it, but it feels somewhat more profound than, than all of that. So we're going to talk about that uh, on the Bulwark podcast. And a little bit later, we're going to be talking with uh, Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger uh, from Virginia, who's going to play, I think, a very important role in the future of uh, centrist politics in America. We will be talking with her. But I want to start with talking about this remarkable day and what it feels like uh, to to realize that uh, on that helicopter, that was that was that was Donald Trump. Uh, headed off into the the sunset. Um, Chris Wallace uh, from Fox News thought that the speech was one of the best he had ever heard. I'm not going to go that far, uh, but I but I will say it met the it met the moment. And by the way, I have uh, numerous takes uh, on our newsletter. Uh, those of you who uh, have uh, not yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, uh, I you know we we would appreciate. Uh, your your membership and, and and part of the the membership involves being part of this effort. Uh, if you're a member of Bulwark Plus, uh, you were able to participate in the live stream that we did last night, trying to make sense of of this re- remarkable day. Um, you, you can it's still going to be online. Some of us actually dressed up for the occasion; others, uh, not 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 so much. But obviously. This fight's not over. Uh, you know, people had asked, what do you, what do you never Trumpers going to do after the election, after Trump leaves? Well, um, the fight against crazy is going to be ongoing and um, it's, it is not going to be an easy, it is not going to be an easy fight. So uh, let, let's just, let, let's listen to what, what Chris Wallace had to say, because of course this is making heads explode on the right, because this is Fox News. And Chris Wallace was very, very impressed with, with the speech. Let's play Chris. I thought it was a great speech. Um, I've been listening to these inaugural addresses since 1961. John F. Kennedy asked not. I thought this was the best inaugural address I ever heard. Obviously, a lot of this event today, a lot of the president's speech was was colored by the emotion of the fact that exactly two weeks ago, 14 days ago, there was a mob of thugs, of insurrectionists, of domestic terrorists on the inaugural stand 
and Joe Biden was saying that democracy prevailed. We, was able to, we were able to get through that. And he was talking about how we need to get through that in the future if we are going to be a united country. He talked about white supremacy, domestic terrorism. He said we must confront it. We will defeat it. My whole soul is in this, uniting our people. You know, I, I think it was less uh, an inaugural address and more uh, uh, part sermon, part pep talk, talking directly to the American people, saying, hear me out. Uh, we, we have a right to dissent peacefully, but our disagreement must not lead to disunion. No, I, and I think that that's right. It was there were not a lot of policy uh, prescriptions in that, uh, but it was this 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 call to America to be America again. And I, I I just was struck by by so many things. I mean, look, the January sixth attacks, the backdrop to everything that happened. I mean, we talked on the on the live stream last night. Does does symbolism matter? This the symbolism of the president going to church in the morning with the leaders of, of Congress of both parties. Um, I, yeah, I do think that the symbolism of the day mattered. In fact, I think that January 6th made it seem more important. I, you know, I, I was sitting with my wife. We were watching the inauguration. She says, I can't remember the last time I actually watched an inauguration. I said, yeah, that's the same thing because it's kind of routine. But yesterday, it, it did feel urgent and it felt fresh. Because we knew it represented something much more fragile than we had ever imagined. And you, it was hard not to have the images of, of the attack uh, just two weeks before, the Trump flags waving. And so when you saw all those American flags there, it, it felt like a moment of redemption. I will say that one of the things that struck me was the way in which Joe Biden is taking the flag back. I know this is kind of an obsession of mine that... The, the, the America is our flag. Uh, you don't get to co-opt it. And the, and there were, there had been a while where it, where it felt like the MAGAverse was going to make the flag their own. Um, but no, he, he, he he's, he's taking it back. He's also taking back this American narrative of what America is, what makes America great. And look, I, I'm not I'm not I'm going to be a fanboy here. I'm not because I think there's going to be a lot of ways we dis we we disagree. But um, yesterday was an extraordinary moment, you know, because of the contrast of his graciousness versus the petulance, the empathy versus the bitterness, but also the moment. I mean, this was a speech in the moment of the, the all of the challenges that Joe Biden faces, and Joe Biden faces. You know, these multiple challenges, you have the pandemic, you have the economic crisis, you have a political crisis, you have all of this at once. And um, you felt you felt the weight. You really did feel uh, the the weight, the weight of it. Um, but also, look, let's not be naive about all of this. Uh, the, the honeymoon is going to be very, very short. And the toxic uh right-wing media ecosystem and its misinformation um, is not going away. This has not been a wake-up call. And so I, I tweeted this out last night that Rush Limbaugh um, is saving, has been saving the worst for last. And I understand some of you may think that that's harsh, but I, I have to say that I'm just, I'm amazed that, 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 that knowing, knowing his situation, that Rush Limbaugh has decided to double down on the worst aspects of his political commentary. So in case you missed it, here's Rush Limbaugh last night talking about really continuing to challenge the legitimacy of the election and spreading this kind of misinformation. This is Rush Limbaugh. 
I think they know that they are not. You got to be very careful here in the words I choose. I think they know that this is something that's been arranged rather than legitimately sought and uh, and 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 won. And you can see this in their attitudes, in their smiles. You can see it, hear it in the words that they are uttering. No, uh, Rush, uh, you 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 can't. And this is the same um, double down bullshit. But this is part of the world that we live in. So a couple of other things have happened over the last twenty four hours that are at least worth noting, including the way that the Trumpist right is kind of splintering, at least parts of it. Uh, the QAnon supporters were really, really, really disappointed that the storm had failed to come. That that there was no bloody coup. Uh, there were no mass executions or arrests. Uh, many of them were stunned. And on the boards were like, well, it's going to happen at noon. It's going to happen at noon. How, how can this possibly happen? What? Really? We were lied to? Really? Well, now I'm the laughingstock of my whole family. Um, interesting headline in the New York Times, uh, a total failure. The Proud Boys now mock Trump. So the Proud Boys aren't that proud anymore. So because they're thinking that they have been betrayed by Donald Trump and that he is a loser. Now, does that represent the hardcore of Trump world? No, no. And, and also they may go off into some other even more dangerous corner. But it is interesting watching um, what happens when people are invested in a, a complete delusion. What happens when reality strikes? And this is something that I've been uh, talking about for some time. So there's that development. Also, uh, for those of you that, that, that follow political narratives, Remember, through most of 20, much of 2020, the the, the Trumpist um, line was that uh, that Joe Biden was the Antifa candidate, and they blame everything on Antifa, and they are obsessed with Antifa. Um, well, the Antifa folks are out in Portland, Oregon, and they are attacking the Democratic Party headquarters. They are burning Biden flags, which again scrambles these narratives. Wait, wait, wait! We were told. That Joe Biden was going to be the Antifa candidate, and yet Antifa is going after him. So people are confused today. The Proud Boys aren't proud anymore. Antifa is not doing what he's, they're supposed to be doing. And there's all these other things that are happening. You have actually have a president who wears a mask. I mean, imagine that. We have White House briefings in which, you know, you don't have tantrums. You actually have the exchange of, of information. And then you also had these other scenes yesterday. A black preacher, a Jew and Hispanic walk into the United States Senate and they're sworn in by the first African-American, Asian-American female vice president. Look, I mean, this transition of power was obviously more than just symbolic. Um, the Biden folks are not kidding around. Uh, they're moving very, very quickly. Uh, president Biden. It's still a little strange to say President Biden. President Biden signed 17 executive orders yesterday. And I know that uh, a lot of Republicans and conservatives are very unhappy about the use of the pen and executive fiats. But, you know, after four years of applauding Trump's use of those executive orders, um, I, I think that the, the uh, re Republican the Republican credibility is kind of shot. Maybe they should sit this one down. Also, they're moving to. Uh, uh, push out many of the Trump folks that we're burrowing in. So the, the the deep cleaning continues. And I have to admit, I had a soft spot for the stories. Did you follow all the stories about the deep cleaning of the White House? I there's there's one there's one scene that kind of sticks in my mind where um, Donald Trump and Melania are walking out of the White House and going to the 
going to the uh, uh, the helicopter, and you can see in the background the the uh, the housekeepers uh, you know racing along, headed toward the Oval Office, with you know they were going to start just ripping it apart. I mean, Donald Trump had to know that they were probably stripping his bed before he set foot on the helicopter. Hey, one last point because I want to I want to get to uh, a Congresswoman Fanberger uh, in just a, in just a moment, but. Tim Miller and I talked about the the uh, Donald Trump's exit and how it diminished him. And I really was struck by this because this is something he usually does pretty well. Uh, Donald Trump stage manages his rallies. This is I mean, this is his thing that he, he is obsessed about this more than anything else. He may have completely screwed up the coronavirus. We're now finding out that there was no pandemic. There's, there's no vaccine uh, distribution system. But uh, you know, he he knows how to stage manage things. And yet he managed to stage manage his departure in such a way as to make him look even smaller than he was. But and, and I talked with uh, with Tim about that yesterday. But the way the day played out, I think, kind of was an exclamation point on all of that. So uh, not a surprise. I mean, he didn't go to the inauguration. And I'm sure that most people who went to the inauguration were pretty happy about that. Right. But his absence from the inauguration, and I wrote about this in my newsletter, um, Morning Shots, it had the effect of airbrushing himself out of our political life. You know, think about that scene of all the ex-presidents at Arlington while Trump is sulking at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, this is a pretty powerful symbol of his isolation and, and, and his irrelevance. So what Trump was doing is he was declaring, I don't belong there. And he didn't. So, you know, he thought that this was some, I don't know what he thought. I mean, like, why was Donald Trump not there at the inauguration? Because his feelings were hurt, because he was being a child, because he was staging a tantrum. There's no other explanation. There's no substantive explanation that he would want to give right now for why he wasn't there, unless he wants to double down on the illegitimacy of, of a free and fair democratic election, one of the safest, most secure in our, in our history. But he... I don't think he fully and this is this is, you know, the, the fundamental problem of Donald Trump, that he doesn't fully grasp how he diminished himself by not being there, that even having lost the election, he would have looked presidential had he shown just a little bit of graciousness. Think about that alternative history. If he would have just behaved like other presidents, a little bit of graciousness, he would have been he would have been able to walk out. Yeah, a, a one term president but with a little bit of self-respect, and yet he wasn't there. And you had all of these other ex-presidents. You had Vice President Pence. You had other Republican leaders who were there, but not Donald Trump. And it was, you know, the, the Soviets are famous for airbrushing out leaders who had fallen out of favor. You know, they take them out of the portraits. You know, if, you were, if Stalin didn't like you, they would, they, would, they would airbrush you out. He airbrushed himself out. And and I I I think in in retrospect, it was uh, it was the it was another example of the way his petulance and narcissism undermines him. There's no doubt in my mind that he's going to be remembered as the worst president in American history. And even today, uh, and we'll talk about this later on the podcast, we're finding out CNN is reporting that the Biden administration has discovered that there is uh, literally no plan for distributing the, the, the vaccines, that they have to start from scratch. Uh, the, the magnitude of this failure is extraordinary. Uh, one, 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 one last comment. Um, 
it's sort of a, a tale of two Republican congressmen. I mean, two Republican senators. I thought that Roy Blunt, uh, who I really don't know that well, a uh, senior senator from Missouri who uh, was a co-chairman of the uh, the inaugural committee, gave uh, a really it was a was a bipartisan, upbeat, really sort of decent speech at the inauguration. And I really did think it was kind of a magnificent troll when you think that his fellow senator from Missouri is Josh Hawley. And so the contrast between Roy Blunt saying, hey, we are all Americans. We're part of this uh, this great ritual of democracy. What a contrast to the, uh, the one of the leading seditionists in the Senate. And of course, uh, speaking of which, uh, Ted Cruz, who obviously believes that his shamelessness is a superpower, showed up at the inauguration. Ted freaking Cruz. And he's taking selfies. So... <laughs> That was just one of those things where you go, okay, did you notice that, that, that he actually he actually showed up there? Uh, I, I thought it was, look, um, this, this, uh, this may be the shortest honeymoon ever, but you have to say that the, the Biden folks, uh, the Biden folks uh, had, a, had a very, very good day. But the challenge is going to be whether or not there is any room for compromise in American politics anymore. Whether or not the 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 environment is so incredibly toxic that that despite all of the great rhetoric and the I deeply sincere, I, I I think that Joe Biden really means it when he says that he wants uh, to unite the country. But you know, can America be united? Which makes the question of centrism in American politics, I think, so urgent and so interesting. And that's why we want to talk with U.S. Representative Abigail Spanberger from Virginia. So joining us on day, what is it, day one, day two of the Biden administration, uh, Representative Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia. So thanks for joining me, first of all, Abigail. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Uh, longtime listeners of this podcast will will recognize the name because I've mentioned her so many times. Uh, one of my one of my set rants has been that Abigail Spanberger ought to be the face of the Democratic Party as opposed to some other folks. Uh, but uh, you know, first of all, right, tell me a little bit about before we get into this. I, I want you to introduce yourself to the audience, just a little bit about your background and the district that you represent, because it's a very, very interesting story. You really did represent a, you know, part of this transition of politics in Virginia, winning a seat that had been held by very conservative Republicans for a very long time, but you've run as a centrist Democrat. So tell me a little bit about that. So my my background and, and again Charlie, thanks for having me sure. join you and talk to your listeners. I I moved around as a kid. My father was a federal law enforcement officer and my mother was a nurse. And we settled ultimately after moving a number of times when I was growing up in central Virginia, in the suburbs of Richmond. And I always knew that I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps and pursue public service. And so initially I followed directly in his uh, footsteps. And after uh, graduating undergrad uh, from University of Virginia, Wahoo, and uh, getting my MBA at an overseas program in Germany, I started uh, a career as a federal law enforcement officer, a federal agent, just like my dad, working with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. And I worked narcotics and money laundering cases for a couple of years. Uh, but my dream was always to go to the CIA. 
and to work in the Directorate of Operations or the National Clandestine Service as a case officer. And so ultimately, after uh, quite a few years of a background check, my uh, start date came through and I began with CIA as a case officer. And that's the role uh, of the individuals who work undercover and go out and recruit people, foreign nationals, to commit espionage on behalf of the United States, mm -hmm. essentially to allow us to make good informed decisions. Um, and so I was undercover for the entirety of my time with CIA. I worked on a whole host of issues, counterterrorism, of course, uh, for the, the entirety of my time. But I worked on Iranian nuclear issues, leadership issues, and um, you know, throughout the world, narco trafficking throughout Central America. So really understanding and working to understand and working to answer some of the hardest questions that, you know, at that time when I was off, you know, on, on these adventures, you know, my goal was to make sure people really understood what was happening. And so fast forward a number of years. In 2014, um, we were living on the West Coast here domestically in the U.S. and um, decided as we were thinking about where we would go next with CIA, with my career, um, after a, a long conversation, decided to move back home to Virginia, take a um, take a step away from public service. I had done so many of the things I believed in and thought were important. Um, and our daughter, who at the time was six, said to us, well, you know, can can we go to uh, to Richmond, Virginia with, with mommy's job. Can we go home to Virginia? And we said, oh, no, we'll, we'll never do that. Not with mommy's job. And she said, well, everybody we love lives in Virginia. Why wouldn't we go there? <laughs> and so it was, um, you know, for somebody who had been so focused on, you know, all the places I wanted to go and all the things I wanted to do, it was actually a really um, thought provoking thing to hear my daughter say that. So we actually decided to kind of take a step away and move back home. And I got a job in the private sector. Um, and then, you know, after the 2016 election, um, I, I'd been working in the private sector. I had become a Girl Scout leader, really leaning into my community service as opposed to, you know, my national service, public service. Um, but I saw that there was this move towards just making everything political and everything partisan and and everything, you know, very black and white and binary. And having been an intelligence officer, you know, I know that that is just not the way the world is. And so these same people who I had been collecting information to help them be informed and to help them make good decisions um, were making decisions that I thought were not only bad, but short-sighted and, um, and and in some cases dangerous. And so it, it was a bit of an evolution, um, but I ultimately decided to run for Congress in the district where uh, I grew up in and my husband's born and raised. Um, and that district, it is in central Virginia. It's a long, skinny district. We have 10 counties in total. Um, the population's majority in the suburbs of Richmond, uh, but the the landmass of our district is majority rural. And so I represent an incredible mix of suburban growing communities and vast, amazing farmland. Um, and we have really just even a diversity of crops. We've got a lot of row crops, uh, cattle operations, uh, chicken farms in different portions of the district. We've got a, a large uh, horticulture industry in our district. And so the scope and the size is really incredible. It's also uh, a historically, as I like to say, a historically Republican voting district. Well, that's, um, that, that's what, that, that is what's so fascinating about <laughs> this district. Now, now, Trump won this district, I assume, right? Your district? So in twenty wow. uh, in 2016, Trump won this district by almost seven points in mm -hmm. 2020. Uh, he did not. So uh, mm -hmm. Biden 
uh, I will say eked out a win. Um, I did outperform Biden uh, in our district in, in 2020, but he did um, he did eke out a win in our district. So, so you know, in this, just for people to know the background of this district, yeah. this is the district that was represented by Eric Cantor, who was the That's majority right. leader in in the in the House. And you might remember what a what an earthquake it was when uh, Dave Bratt defeated Eric Cantor, shocking the world, defeated yeah. him in the primary. So this is this is not just an historically Republican district. This is a storied Republican <laughs> district. That's right. And, so, and so it was it was really eye opening when any Democrat won in the district that people thought that Eric Cantor had owned. And of course, uh, then it seemed to be moving hard to the right. And then suddenly we have this centrist Democrat there. That's right. It was the first, um, you know, I was the first Democrat elected since 1968. Um, and this had been uh, Republican held, as you mentioned, Eric Cantor had been majority leader who was on path to being Speaker of the House at the time. And he lost in a primary from the right. Um, and so, and and that was a, about the time, actually, um, I was uh, not living at home. I mean, I remember it was national news. I was living on the West Coast still just and we were shocked. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, Eric Cantor, who had been there for years at that point, um, had lost in this primary to the right. And there's been much written about that. Um, but really what I found and what when I began campaigning um, was, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat, but I want to get things done. And I am pragmatic and I'm focused on the fact that I think we make better decisions when we understand not just what we're choosing to do, the path that we deem to be the best one, be it a piece of policy, be it you know a, an action we're taking, but also when we know what it is that we're not doing. Um, and, and frankly, I think that's a background from CIA. If you're going to take this step in an operation, you have if you're going to do it well, you need to have also considered the 10 other things you could do, because it's not just about what's the best choice to move forward. It's also what are the things you're choosing not to do and why? And so, the reason, yeah. yeah, I mean, the reason I, we, I wanted to spend so much time on, on your background is because I, I do think that one of the most important issues facing American politics today is, is, is there a future for centrists? Are there ways in which um, Democrats can win in Republican district? Are there swing voters? Uh, is there a different approach to politics than, than than the extreme? So let's just move ahead to the yeah. day where you know the 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 news the news of the day. I'm very interested to hear your reaction to yesterday, and 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 you can pick any any part of uh, day one of the Biden administration or the final day of the Trump administration. What was what was your takeaway? Uh, what did you think of the speech or anything else you want to react to? So I, I think that President Biden uh, set an incredible example for the country when in a very personal capacity, he invited um, leaders of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party to go to church with him before getting sworn in. And I think everyone knows that President Biden is a very religious man and attends church regularly. Um, and the fact that in that very personal uh, communal way that he demonstrated for the nation that he was inviting them into his very personal space um, as people, uh, you know, as colleagues, as counterparts, I, I think that's sent an important message. I think his speech um, was beautiful in that it, it did what I think every president and every elected leader, frankly, should do, which is it spoke very honestly about the challenges we face as a nation, the shortcomings we have as a nation, as a people, um, but 
it was just imbued with hope for the entirety of his speech that we are here and we need to move forward and we can do it. Um, and it's focus on unity um, and, and not to, not in kind of a candy cane saccharine sense of unity, but in a true, this is how we move forward sense. And, and if you look even at his campaign, um, Biden won because he brought together a broad coalition of people. And, you know, I think it, it harkens back for me, there's a the quote that people like to um, used so frequently that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, you know, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will, you know, make people join you. Um, I, I think that that's an important element where, you know, we should all be working for the things that we care about, but doing it in a way where people will join us. And, you know, in a district like ours, where there's a whole heck of a lot of people who aren't naturally inclined to agree with me on policy issues. And so I have a real responsibility um, to talk about things in a far broader sense than maybe how it, it you might talk about them in a democratic, heavily democratic district. And that's not saying that I say anything different, but it's when I'm talking about climate change, it can't just be the emotions of climate change or the kind of moral imperative of fighting climate change. It also has to be about the jobs and the economy and, and the national security implications of doing nothing um, and building out those broad coalitions. And so in his speech yesterday, um, I think that the president did a beautiful job of demonstrating his willingness to bring together a coalition. And frankly, in the entirety of the event, the music choices, I mean, everything from even at the end, uh, when everyone was asked to join together and sing Amazing Grace, I mean, it was just, um, it was beautiful. And those are all intentional choices that that I ideally uh, will help bring us together where we're at a point where we disagree over policy and and fight and debate over policy, but not over some of the basic principles of of who we are as a people. Well, speaking of the basic principles, though, the, talk to me about the whiplash. Um, two weeks before the inauguration, of course, you had the assault on the Capitol, this, this, this amazing event that was still, I think, was hanging over everyone, all the, the images of all of that. Uh, a week before, uh, you and the House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump. And then, of course, this Wednesday, the, the inauguration of Joe Biden. I mean, it does. It must feel like a little bit of whiplash. Tell me a little bit about your experience um, on on January 6th, what that was like being in the House chambers uh, when when you were under attack? So January 6th, I had gone over to the House chamber uh, to participate in our constitutional um, responsibility of recognizing the election results. And I was seated in the gallery. So that's typically where the public would be. Uh, but because of COVID, those of us who wouldn't be speaking, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not from an impacted state um, or a potentially contested state. So there were a group of us who were seated up in the gallery um, to participate, but, you know, in order to get the, the distancing, um, during COVID. And so it, it very quickly became clear that it was, uh, going to be a day that would, uh, be quite challenging. And, you know, notably we, I, I had told my team and we're already, most people are working from home because of COVID, but I had said, I really don't want anybody in the office unless you need to be here. And if you're coming to the office, wear jeans, wear sweatpants, don't make it clear that you are a Hill employee, um, because there's just going to be a, a group of protesters and you're probably not, <laughs> there's no reason for you, you to knew. get engaged. You, you, you knew this, this was, this was foreseeable and it was foreseen. It was predictable okay. and it was predicted. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we were, okay, let's walk in the tunnels when we're in the Capitol. Let's not walk outside. Um, 
But just very quickly, as the rioters started marching towards the Capitol and made it to the Capitol, um, it was almost as though some of it was occurring in slow motion, the reality that of, of what was occurring and unfolding, which is they were actually trying, not just protesting at the Capitol, which you know has happened, of course, um, but actually trying to breach the Capitol, which you know, has has never happened like this by Americans trying to breach the Capitol um, on a day when Congress is hosting a joint session, or frankly, any other day. Um, and so, you know, it, it it the the fervor and the the kind of chaotic nature of the day unfolded relatively quickly. When we had started the joint session, there was an objection to Arizona. The House and the Senate divided, and the House started pursuing debate. And we had Speaker Pelosi was in the Speaker's chair. And, and somewhat quietly, people moved in and sort of pulled her out, um, which, you know, there was a clear hesitation. She was did not appear so willing to be leaving. Um, and so the, the fact that it wasn't, you know, it was very clear she wasn't leaving for a phone call or something, um, at least from, from my vantage point. And so they pulled her out. And then uh, Chairman McGovern went up and, and took her place. And we continued debate. And just very quickly, it, there was a level of fervor, I think, on the, on the floor. And then from there, it, we got news that there had been insurrectionists who had breached the Capitol. Um, there had been uh, gas, uh, that a, a chemical irritant that had been deployed. So get your gas mask out, put your mm-hmm. gas mask on, take your gas mask off. You know, don't hyperventilate. And it, it was this, uh, you know, take them off. We don't want to restrict your air. Put them on, take them off. Um, and I, I was up in the gallery. Eventually, they uh, evacuated the people who had been on the floor of the house. And those of us in the gallery said, we're, you know, we're still up here. Um, but there were insurrectionists at the doors and they're banging on the doors. And so we you know, climbed over railings, got over to the other side. Capitol police officers barricaded the door. There's there's rioters and insurrectionists and far right extremists, you know, trying to ba- bang down the door. There were, we were in the gallery when the shots were fired. Um, to try and keep people from essentially entering um, and get down. It was, it was chaos, uh, chaos, chaos. And, you know, eventually we were able to get out a back door. And as we were uh, evacuating out the side door of the gallery, uh, there were insurrectionists all proned out on the ground. There were police, I believe it was Capitol Police and, and DC Metropolitan Police at the time. You know, people splayed out on the ground um, as we're evacuating out. And, um, you know, I think it was, it was a really interesting experience to see just how fragile our democracy is. Of course, the juxtaposition between two weeks ago and yesterday was profound, but, um, you know, the, the, the way that there can be a path towards little lies, uh, from little lies and, and little ideas and little irritations and irritants, that can actually lead and take root and lead to a place where there's an an insurrection of American citizens who are actually attacking the United States Capitol because they've been fed this cocktail of lies um, is, I think it speaks to the responsibility that lawmakers or frankly anyone with an amplified voice um, have to make um to be truthful, to tell people hard things they may not always want to hear, um, and to lead. Um, Because we got to the 6th of January because it was far easier for some to say, well, you know, and I heard this, well, people in my district feel that things were unfair. I said, well, they 
but you know they weren't, right? You know that Georgia has now counted its ballots how many times, right? This is, there is no fraud here. You know that. So tell them, well, they feel, well, but, but you know, like you be the one to tell them. Um, and so that was one of the most interesting things. And I, I, I hope it was a wake up call for people that when we do not show the strength or the leadership to tell people things they may not want to hear, that we can create a pathway well, towards what we one, saw. One would hope, by the way, I think this is a really important point, how the small lies become the big lie. And yep. we become so inured uh, to all of the lies and people would you know, simply shrug that when, when you had a president of the United States who was this vector of disinformation and just lied on a routine basis, that it, it became sort of the background noise, but there were real consequences. And 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 it was, you know, but you would think that people would have um, learned their lesson. And you mentioned you'd hope it would be a wake up call, but it wasn't. And that's what <laughs> I wanted to ask you about. So you go through all of this experience, which everybody knows. I mean, we we know what happened, and and still, I can't get past that the fact that people came back on the floor of the House of Representatives, your colleagues, yeah. and 138 Republican representatives having experienced this attack on American democracy still voted not to count the electoral votes from the state of Pennsylvania. And again, that's based on this, what you described as the, the cocktail of lies. So this was not a wake up call for them. Yeah. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> Sally, you're, you're, you're touching on something that is, is, um, is a real point of reflection for, many of us, um, oh, I, arguably all of my Democratic colleagues and, and many of my Republican colleagues. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. They're, I mean, literally police officers were in the hospital fighting for their lives, beaten by insurrectionists. And, and here we were listening to people just spout fallacies. And in fact, one, one, <laughs> one of my colleagues, you know, at that time used his floor speech to try and say, uh, some conspiratorial statement about how it was actually Antifa. And, you know, people are saying there's facial recognition that shows they were really yeah. Antifa. I mean, that was, just- That was Matt Gates. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, the, the lunacy of it. But so, I mean, you know, frankly, it, it is alarming to, to me. It is a, a real worry moving forward. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think we're going to be seeing over the next the next month, whether or not there seems to be a, a desire by some to potentially forget all that happened, um, which um, is is also a challenge in and of itself, because when it comes to that that point of telling the truth to voters, you know, we can't just pretend that none of it happened. Um, we can't just say, okay, well, now we have a new administration, so we're just going to forget um, that that you know. Ugh, uh, mm -hmm. So many members of Congress, as, as there was still shattered glass, basically didn't uphold their oath to the Constitution, right? Because their because their constituents feel a certain way because they hadn't told them the truth, right? And that's that's where we got. And well, when we have hard conversations changed. about climate change and healthcare and how to deal with COVID. You know, when we have colleagues who don't want to have card conversations about the fact that, yeah, I hate wearing a mask. It's uncomfortable. It, it seems impersonal. I don't like it either, but it saves lives. So let's do it, right? Like that's the most basic level of leadership that we're going to need to see. 
Exactly. So, you know, Joe Biden is making this appeal for unity. He obviously needs and, and he seems to believe that he can get some bipartisan support that maybe the fever will break at some point. And of course, the House is very different from the Senate. So let's just talk about the House. How does a House of Representatives like the one you're in right now, how does it deal with these other substantive issues when you don't have these sort of basic levels of, you know, being able to, you know, acknowledge the same the same reality? Um, what are the prospects that there will be any Democrats that will support the initiatives of the Biden administration? What what are the prospects for bipartisanship in the House of Representatives right now? You know, I think some of it will be I, I, I'm going to maintain my optimism that I think there there is strong opportunity for bipartisanship. And, and certainly there will be some of my colleagues, and we've already seen some of them in, you know, the, the, uh, who are railing against a Biden administration before he comes in. Um, but, but I do think that there is a significant amount of room for bipartisanship. Um, and, and just to kind of frame it as to why I think that's important, you know, when you look at... Th- history, shorter term, longer term history, when we have worked as an American people, when legislators have worked to build broader coalitions around issues, we have created long lasting pieces of policy that serve a good in this country um, and that are not subject to just partisan beatings. Um, and I'll, I'll use Medicare Social Security. I mean, Medicare in particular, that was passed with the Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic president, and and could have been pushed through in a in a partisan way, um, but but at the time did pass uh, with Republican support um, in the House and in the Senate. And I think that when we generally look at the state of where we are and where we have been over the decades since Medicare went into place, I think part of the reason that it was a successful program and a well-respected program, you know, not immune to challenges or criticisms, but, but certainly a successful program that has had a tremendous purpose in our country. I think part of the reason why that's the case is because there was a significant coalition behind it from its inception. And if you uh, un- unlike Obamacare. Un yes, unlike Obamacare, unlike the ACA where that program was seemingly partisan from the beginning. You know, and 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 I think that because of the nature of the composition of the House of Representatives and the Senate. So we we the Democratic Party have the majority in in both, but it is a slim majority. Right. And particularly when you look at the, you know, the voting rules and the thresholds you need to make um, on the Senate side, there will be many places where we will have to get uh, support, at least from some Republicans. And so some of the steps of just actually saying, okay, I've got this bill. I'm working on this bill. Um, th- this is, I, I have concocted it as I think it's perfect. So now let me talk to my colleagues who might have a different ideological mm-hmm. you know, position, who might be more conservative or more liberal or more this or more that. You know, What do they think of it? How do I bring more people to the table? Um, and, and I think that at times we can um, focus on my perfect piece of legislation is exactly as I want it. Um, and even with the COVID relief packages, you know, people were on, on both sides of the aisle. If we are both a little bit unhappy, it means we have legislation that across the board um, could garner pretty significant bipartisan support. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that we should 
um, pull back on our goals or our priorities. But I am saying that we should take the time to say, this is my goal. This is how I think we should mm-hmm. pursue it. What do you think? Um, and we may disagree nine out of the 10 times, but it might be that some of those colleagues across the aisle on that ninth, you know, ninth, 10th time give feedback that, oh, well, you know, my perspective as a Democrat, as a Virginian, as a woman, as an Intel officer, as a this, 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 I didn't see it from that angle. So you know what? I can make significant shifts or some shifts to my legislation if it's going to bring in additional people. Um, and I think that, that it, that's it's the way it, it should work. Right? <laughs> and that, that's, this is the way it should work. But is it the way it actually works? Because what I'm seeing is, is a Republican caucus right now yeah. that is looking for heretics and that, that anybody that crosses over, um, you know, has will be regarded as a betrayal. I mean, look what's happening here. You're having yeah. this move to oust Liz Cheney because she broke ranks. Uh, you know what happened to your fellow Virginia Congressman Denver Riggleman when That's he right. stood up against QAnon and the other, you know, nut, nut jobs out there. So the Republicans seem to be demanding um, a lot. Of, you know, they have decided that compromise, what they said a long time ago, compromise is a really, really dirty word. And any sort of collaboration with you Democrats is a form of betrayal. I mean, isn't that the reality? I think, I mean, sadly, that is the reality for many people. And and frankly, it is in part a result, uh, getting a little off topic, of the gerrymandering that we see across the country. When you have a legislative body where, you know, hundreds of the seats, well, frankly, where, you know, fewer than maybe 20% of members are in actually competitive districts, um, it it becomes a different type of conversation, you know, and, and that's and, what makes you somewhat unusual, right? Because you are in a competitive district. The, for the for most, as you point out, yeah. um, most representatives are more concerned with a primary than with a general election. You're in okay. a district where you actually need to worry about a general election. Yes, yeah. <laughs> very competitive yeah. general election. Yeah. And and but and you know, I think the the value. I mean, the value of that is I represent people across the spectrum from the furthest left to the furthest right and everywhere in between. And in order to win in my district, you know, again, in a historically Republican voting district, when I come out there and say, this is who I am. Oh, and I'm a Democrat. You know, I had um, different funny conversations with people along the way where people say, well, you know, can you just be an independent? Cause I'll vote for you. Cause I'm an independent. I said, well, sir, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. Oh, but I like everything you say, but I'm a Republican. So <laughs> how about you switch to being an independent? I said, well, sir, maybe you're the Democrat. Oh no. <laughs> um, but I, but I think that part of it is that when you endeavor, I mean, every day to understand the people that you represent as, as I do. Um, and when every day you've got somebody in your district mad at you as, as I generally do, um, it, it provides a really tremendous perspective because just as I have, uh, constituents across the spectrum, uh, you know, I, I have colleagues across the spectrum. And so when a colleague objects to a particular thing, I sometimes understand it because it might've already been a conversation I had with a constituent or conversely Mm -hmm. conversations I have at times with my uh, constituents can have been informed by conversations I've been able to have with my colleagues, which have been helpful. Um, But yes, when you have people who are just focused and only worried about their primaries, they, 
they view things through that singular lens. And well, and, you know, and that's yeah, and that's also true of uh, of the Democratic caucus, 100%. where uh, and, and you you were a little bit of a of a lightning rod for pointing <laughs> out that, that some things mm-hmm. that uh, the Democrats were not in competitive districts said about defunding the police were not helpful for um, those of you that were in in swing districts. So now. You have a very slim majority in the House yeah. of Representatives. How how unified are you going to be, especially given this split between the people who can indulge their ideological id uh, versus those of you that actually have to worry about persuading swing voters? Yeah, and I, I think it's about trying to find the places to build coalitions. I think it's about being fiercely, uh, fiercely committed to our principles um, but recognizing that achieving the goals we set forth, um, that there's not always one singular path to get there. So on issues and of principle, you know, equity, justice, people's right to be who they are, we should be unwavering, right? Because that that's a driver. Um, but when we're looking at um, job creation or green energy a variety of different pursuits in trying to optimize investments in green energy or building up infrastructure, there is not one way to do that. Um, And we should be thoughtful about the conversations that we have with our colleagues. And, you know, if, if some of our colleagues are motivated by the national security implications or the economic implications, um, and, and I'll, I'll use fighting climate change. You know, this is an issue that's so important on the democratic side of the aisle um, but so frequently, we as Democrats talk about it as, you know, we have to fight global climate change. And we end the conversation there. Mm-hmm. And that works. You know, that's an applause line. It's an existential threat. That's an applause line in some districts. Um, but if you're having a conversation with someone who hasn't yet accepted that global climate change is an existential threat, you have to go the next step. And you have to say, you know what? The impact of global climate change uh, is mass migration. And that is a that is a tremendous national security risk and humanitarian crisis that we, the United States of America, will have to contend with and have been contending with and the geopolitical instability that that creates. You know what? When the United States Navy says that rising sea levels are a national security threat, we got to listen to them. You know what? As our economy is changing and certainly as we've been ravaged by COVID, investing in new infrastructure and uh, you know, more resilient energy lines and new technologies that, yes, are good for the environment, but also create jobs, like this is win-win. And so taking those extra steps to have people perk up their ears and say, whoa, you know, I may not, I may not have this emotional reaction to the conversation we're having, um, but, but yeah, I'm kind of on board with those new jobs. And yeah, oh, I recognize the national security implications of doing nothing. And having those conversations which frankly take a heck of a lot more time uh, and and uh, are harder, but that's being truthful with your voters. And um, and I think that if we do a bit more work in that way, then it, it becomes harder for us to just turn into our corners and say, oh, well, they care about this and they care about that. Um, and, and, and to be clear, you know, there are, there are going to be people who may not want to work in that manner, and that and that's fine. And and there's a role for advocates and and activists to push for perfection all the time, right? But there's also a role for people to say, well, okay, I know you want this 100%, and you want this 100%. Let's think through where we can get to, you know, if we want to go 10 steps forward, can we move five? 
and then make the next plan for the following five. You know, it, it, oh. it, it, it occurs to me that what you're describing is, is a politics of persuasion that it seems like a lost art because it, it it's hard to persuade as opposed to simply stake out your position and to advocate. And so much of our politics is just simply going for the applause line, going for the advocacy, as opposed to trying to change people's minds. You could tell that, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the big contrasts between, I think, between uh, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden is D Donald Trump just stopped trying to persuade anyone. It was just yeah. like, we're, we're just going to hammer you in the, in the in the face. And if you if you're not with us, um, we're, we're going to do whatever possible to get your tears. Uh, whereas Biden seems to think that he can persuade. You seem to think we can persuade. There are a lot of people who think that you and, and the president are quite naive, that we <laughs> now live in an era in which no one can be persuaded. It's just we've gone to our corners and that's what politics is. Smash mouth politics, just pure power uh, assertion rather than argumentation. You know, if if I um, if I'm to be considered naive, and certainly I know that that's a criticism some would have, I, I feel as though I'm in extraordinary company with President Biden on that one, and, and you know it it becomes an issue of um, it's hard to say that you were wrong. It's hard to say you don't have a hundred percent of the right oh, answers. Yeah. It's hard to say. Um, you know, to, to step away from a, a, a tweet that goes viral or, you know, a, a good applause line at a rally. But, but it, is a, it is a role um, that we choose to be in as legislators to legislate and to govern. Um, and, you know, I, what I find so interesting is this is the one place and perhaps, again, willing to accept that I'm wrong, maybe others can see other examples, but I really do think that politics is the one place where we think there should be no compromise, right? I've been yeah. married for uh, <laughs> for quite a while to a wonderful husband, and we compromise all the time. I've got three kids, and I've compromised all the time. You know, not on issues of principle, of course, but you know, on what are we going to eat for dinner? What time are we going to eat for dinner? Uh, having worked any job uh, from no matter what business sector, you know, you you find commonality. You work through problems and disagreements. And yet, um, the one place in the world where not only uh, do we consider it to be naive that you would have to work with people you disagree with um, and that you might have to compromise, um, but, but that it would be frowned upon, um, is, is in politics. When in fact, governing, um, if you're, I, I think, doing it right, um, requires it all the time. And You would, and I, you would think. <laughs> you, you would think. Okay, so in, in, in the time that we have left, I want to ask you about one breaking story because I, I, I think that obviously one of the, 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 the most important tasks that the Biden administration has that, that you and Congress have is getting a handle on the coronavirus pandemic. Yes. We've crossed you know, 400,000 uh, deaths. Um, it is raging out of control. We had more than 4,000 Americans die just yesterday. The worst is potentially yet to come. And we're finding out this morning via CNN that Biden is inheriting a non-existent coronavirus vaccine yep. distribution plan, and they have to start from scratch. So in many ways, it was worse than we thought. So one of the quotes from a source is, there's nothing for us to re rework. We're going to have to build everything from scratch. So your your reaction, your 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 thoughts about this? The Biden administration comes in; they're looking around. There was a, obviously a shaky transition, and they're finding out that there is nothing. There is no national vaccine distribution plan. Yeah. 
you know, I, th- I think for, um, for, for those of us who have had conversations with nursing home administrators or uh, nurses and doctors and, and frontline healthcare workers and, um, and, and health department officials and heard the way that they have been fighting and fighting and fighting this virus, trying to protect their people, trying to save lives. Um, and that the White House wasn't doing its part when everyday Americans are giving their lives, um, giving their all to doing their part of it is, um, it's such a deep, deep disappointment, um, wholly unsurprising, but a deep, deep disappointment. And, and I think, frankly, just an affirmation again, that uh, yesterday's inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris um, needs to be a new chapter. And, and to get to the earlier point, you know, so much of where we are is, is based in the fact that we had an administration that didn't like facts and evidence. Yeah. That we or science and that bad news and bad news stories somehow reflected badly. But you know, leadership is telling people things they don't always want to hear. There is a global pandemic on its way. And you know, when you think back to some of the prior pandemics and mm. you know, George W. Bush, like this is this is not a partisan issue. George W. Bush, um, by all accounts, did tremendous work in pandemic preparation. Um, and so part of why Ebola never reached our shores is because of what the Obama administration did. Mm-hmm. Part of what we saw in a global response to swine flu and, or I guess avian flu was, uh, was under the uh, Bush administration was because of the preparation that they did. And so turning this page, I, I do hope that, that people recognize that we need um, a coordinated response. We are going to have to pay close attention to uh, what it is that the Biden administration is is attempting to achieve in um, ensuring broad scale vaccination uh, deployment, because you know the the real tremendous disappointment here is you know there there's a, a, and I'm not one to give many compliments to the outgoing administration, but the outgoing administration did pursue good um, or uh, kind of aggressive policies on trying to ensure vaccine development, right? Right. But how do you how do you work yeah. towards vaccine development with zero plan to actually deploy said vaccine? And and months ago on the Hill, we were talking about, OK, well, so last spring we saw a shortage of PPE and masks and gowns and the things we needed to keep our, our healthcare workers and our frontline workers safe. You know, now we're going to have vaccines that we're going to be distributing across the country. Do we have enough syringes? Do we have enough of the PPE for those who are going to be vaccinating people, the actual like implementing elements of this vaccine. Are we ready for that? Um, and, and we really couldn't there, you know, I never was able to find a satisfactory answer about that. Um, but, but I guess, you know, part of it is clearly the fact that there was no effort to make a plan while they had no done effort. so much work to get the vaccine. The idea that, Oh, you were, we're just going to pass it off to the States um, is, it it's is extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's um it, it's it's extraordinary, especially when you think about all the things that have been going on for the last two months. Yeah. The president basically, you know, in his bunker, obsessing about the election that he that he lost and all of this stuff while this pandemic has been raging, and he's 
completely uh, it was completely AWOL in providing leadership on the vaccination. I mean, you know, if if you leave everything else out, this this could have been or should be one of the greatest uh, public policy failures. And it's ironic because, as you point out, Operation Warp Speed, the development of the vaccine was one of the greatest successes. Yes. But then but then followed by this this failure of leadership, this failure of logistics, the failure of this administration, frankly, to give a damn about solving this problem. That's right. That's, that's uh, right. That's, that's and, my thing. And, and it's the America. This is the part that's tragic, right? It's the 400,000 Americans who have lost their lives, Literally their tragic. family yeah. members who are forever you know, uh, feeling that loss, the millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. And if we had been able to have a plan to get to, let's say, March with, you know, a massive effort, right? We, like, we are the United States of America. We liberated Europe. We, we, we helped defeat communism. We have done extraordinary things. We should have been leading the way on this. Um, and, and that's what I just find so heartbreaking is that we see other examples in other places throughout the world where they just showed the leadership that you expect to see from the United States of America, that the world wants to see from us. Um, and and it it's impacted lives. Lives have been lost. Families have been devastated. And our economy continues to suffer, right? We want to get back to a place where our restaurants are booming and our industries are growing and people are employed and kids are in school. But we can't do that until we utilize the science of these vaccines and ensure that people are vaccinated. And even just hearing conversations, I was speaking with my in-laws about the polio vaccine and how they just remember, you know, just getting vaccinated in school, yeah. these massive efforts that even as children, you know, they, they remember as being strong examples of, you know, this is our strength as people. Um, and and I, I just hope that the Biden administration, and frankly, I know that they will because this is the responsibility of those who choose to enter government, of those who choose to serve the American people to actually do it. And when we have the ability to save lives, we need to harness it and utilize it. And, um, uh, no, it, it it is, and and I, but I'm on my soapbox about this, Charlie. It's a clean, but it's a clean break, and yeah. th this is one thing that I think historians are going to have a hard time fully grasping is that the 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 Trump administration this was this was job number one. This yep. could have been a huge success for them, and and yet I think it's going to go down as as one of the markers of 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 a failed presidency. Abigail Spanberger, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. We appreciate it very very much. Charlie, it's been wonderful to speak with you, and uh, thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.